There's an Android fingerprint vulnerability, Chinese hackers have breached US infrastructure, a legit app has turned malicious, spyware found in actual combat zones, insider threats, and more. It sounds like a big week. It's kind of a light week, though. Um, a lot of fun stuff, so really excited to get into it. Welcome to the Surveillance Support 135, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I'm Henry from TechLore. I'm Nathan from The New Oil. Promo segment. So surveillance support is its own thing. It's not really like funded by TechLore or The New Oil. Um, we're trying to develop this to be its own little project. And so all the support that you guys can give really helps us grow this podcast. The best way you can do that is through Patreon. Um, it's a monthly way that you can support this podcast. We do post pretty much weekly. And so um, having that monthly support really helps us keep us going consistently back here. Um, and there's also really fun perks there on Patreon. Like you can join our Q&A, which is down um, in the later part of this report, which you'll all listen to, which is really exciting. Um, there's also some more uncut versions of this uh, report where we share more of our personal experiences and our personal thoughts with things. Um, and so if you want to support us, Patreon is the best way to do it. If you want something a little bit more privacy respecting, we do have a LibraPay account as well. And the most privacy respecting way to support our podcast is directly through Monero. Um, we see all of those Monero contributions. So um, I know it's hard for us to thank any individuals, but we do see all of you who have given us Monero. It's hugely beneficial to us back here. Um, and thank you all who have helped us grow. And if you have anything to share our way, even if it's just a copy a month, which is like $5 a month, which is what our Patreon starts at, that really helps us out a lot. Hey, Nate, do we have any fixes regarding last week's SR? Do we? You're asking like I should know. Did a lot of people complain? <laughs> I, oh, I, oh I, I, okay. Okay. So, all right. <laughs> I'm going to screenshot this and send it to you to include in the editing. So to my defense, last week, Henry said something about being stuck in a rut and wanted to take the weekend off to like get better. So I assumed it was burnout to which, and, and okay, to be fair, before we recorded, you did say you were feeling under the weather, but I thought that was a result of the burnout. Like I thought that was a secondary thing. But yeah, for the record, Henry wasn't so much burned out last weekend as he was like physically ill. So he's feeling better now, as you can see, as he's sitting here mocking me. Um. <laughs> no, I, I totally see the miscommunication. So like with the moment that you put like you already did the video and I checked it the day after already. I wasn't going to ask you to change it. I was just like, oh, it's not burnout, but it's a cool message nonetheless about burnout. So and that was kind of why I went ahead and felt comfortable saying it was because I was like, you know, it's it's. Yeah, it happens to everybody. Okay, so we'll launch into our highlight story now. This is really surprising. The headline says Android phones are vulnerable to fingerprint brute force attacks. And I thought they meant like device fingerprinting, like in that sense. No, they're talking about the literal, like, if you're like me, and I know y'all are going to be mad about this. I use fingerprint to unlock my phone because it's easier and it's faster. And why not? Quoting the article here, the Chinese researchers managed to overcome existing safeguards on smartphones like attempt limits and liveness detection that protect against brute force attacks by exploiting what they claim are two zero day vulnerabilities, cancel after match fail and match after lock. The authors of the technical paper also found that biometric data on the fingerprint sensor's serial peripheral interface were inadequately protected, allowing for a man-in-the-middle attack to hijack fingerprint images. Quick side note, this is one of those articles that has a lot more detail in the actual article, so if you're interested in a lot more of the technical details, be sure to check that out. We're just giving you the broad strokes here. They're calling this attack brute print, I believe. So brute print and SPI man-in-the-middle attacks were SPIs that a serial peripheral interface thing. Brute print and SPI man-in-the-middle attacks were tested against 10 popular smartphone models, achieving unlimited attempts on all Android and Harmony OS devices, which that's Huawei apparently, and 10 additional attempts on iOS devices. 
The attacker needs physical access to the target, uh, the target device to launch a brute print attack, access to a fingerprint database, which can be acquired from academic data sets or biometric data leaks, things like that, and the necessary equipment, which only costs around $15. So I think the biggest hurdle here is probably physical access to your device. Other than that, it sounds like it's a pretty cheap and easily achievable attack probably in most cases or many cases. And then the tested Android devices allow infinite fingerprint tryouts. So brute forcing the user's fingerprint and unlocking the device is practically possible given enough time. On iOS, however, the authentication security is much more robust, effectively preventing brute forcing attacks. A good number of these attacks, especially the scarier ones, require physical access. Just be aware of your devices, where they are. Yeah, I think that's about all I got. I know Henry has some, some thoughts he wants to add to this. Well, just quickly going through the devices for people curious, they actually didn't test Pixels, which is a little unfortunate. Um, so there's the, the Xiaomi Mi 11 Ultra, there's the Vivo X60 Pro, the OnePlus 7 Pro, the Oppo Reno Ace, Samsung Galaxy S10 Plus, the OnePlus 5T, Huawei Mate 30 Pro 5G, Huawei P40, and then the two iPhones, the Apple iPhone 7 and the iPhone SE. So they didn't test Pixels, and actually all the devices they tested are older devices. Um, which actually makes me think that they won't patch this um, because they tested a OnePlus 7 Pro. I think they're on the OnePlus 10 now. And they actually show the OS versions they used. That OnePlus 5T is running Android 8. The OnePlus 7 Pro was running Android 11. And it looks like the OnePlus 7 Pro is actually updated to Android 12 as of right now. So they weren't even using the most up-to-date version well, of damn, the now I, I, I almost feel like the story is misleading now. <laughs> I typed in like the latest OnePlus 7 Pro update and the it looks like, someone correct me if I'm wrong, the last update on the OnePlus 7 Pro, the last security update was in December 2022. So it's not even an up-to-date Android device anymore. So, And again, the iPhones that they tested were still running iOS 14. So that's like two whole versions behind. So it, it's like slightly flawed research, I think, but it still speaks to how I guess your device can be brute forced, especially if it's an older device. If these vulnerabilities still okay. exist in current Android devices, hopefully the developers will be able to look at this research, see how they did it and say, oh, okay, here's how we can counter that. So Nate, am I reading these notes correct that there's only one data breach this week? That's the only one I remember seeing, unless I just really slipped and didn't note any others. Wow. All right. Well, let's get into it. So Dish says ransomware gangs stole almost 300,000 employee records. This is another quick update to the somehow still unfolding Dish saga. And Dish's data breach notification confirms that hackers also access driver's license numbers and other forms of identification. Stay subscribed because there might be more updates. That'll take us into companies. We're going to start off with... Um... Pretty big one from Google. Google has launched a bug bounty program for its Android applications. The applications in scope for the program include those developed by Google LLC, developed with Google, researched at Google, Red Hot Labs, whoever that is, Google Samples, Fitbit LLC, Nest Labs Inc., Waymo LLC, and Waze. The list of InScope apps also contains what Google describes as tier one Android applications, which the article then goes on to list. Qualifying vulnerabilities include those allowing arbitrary code execution and theft of sensitive data and weaknesses that could be chained with other flaws to lead to a similar impact. These include orphan permissions, path traversal or zip path traversal flaws leading to arbitrary file write, intent redirections that can be exploited to launch non-exported application components, and security bugs caused by unsafe passage of pending intents. Google says that it will reward a maximum of $30,000 for remote code execution without user interaction and up to $7,500 for bugs allowing the theft of sensitive data remotely. If you're a developer who wants to help make all of Android better, 
Um, now is your opportunity and make a little money on the side. The next step comes from Brave. It's request off the record. So starting in version 1.53, by the way, I'm still waiting for this because they released forgetful browsing not too long ago, which is actually something I'm very, very, very impatiently waiting for because I made some changes on my laptop and how it functions. And that is actually going to be a perfect tool for me. So I'm waiting for 1.53 Brave, but starting in 1.53, they're also going to roll out a new feature called request off the record OTR. This feature aims to help people who need to hide their browsing behavior from others who have access to their computer or phone. For example, a person who is the victim of intimate partner violence who needs to find support services without their partner knowing, or someone needing to find personal health care without others in their home finding out. Request OTR, which is again off the record, allows websites to optionally describe their own content as sensitive. The browser can then ask if the user would like to visit the site in OTR mode, where the site is visited in a clean, temporary storage area. Sites visited in OTR mode are not saved in your browsing history, and any cookies, permissions, or other site data do not persist to disk. Meanwhile, other websites visited are stored and treated as normal, obscuring to anyone who may have access to the device later that any unusual behavior happened. Couple things here. One, it sounds like sites will have to opt into this. So that's just one thing you have to remember that like we're going to have to see sites actually support this technology. And my concern is that this might be treated like something like do not track um, where you don't really see sites caring about this at all. Um, and the other layer of this, too, is I, I want it took me a while to understand how this is different from just opening a private window. It's the obscurity of using a tool like this. Um, with this, it looks like you're just using a regular private browser or a regular browsing window. You're not in a private browsing mode or anything like that. And you're warned before accessing the site and you can use OTR mode to have it just not saved on the disk without opening something that looks like uh, it looks conspicuous in any way. With that, we'll move into research. And we have one story. I'm really tired of these brain scanning stories lately, you guys. Uh, the headline says, AI reconstructs high-quality video directly from brain readings in study. Quoting the article, researchers, I'm actually not even going to try to pronounce those names. I apologize. I will screw them up. But uh, three Chinese researchers from the National University of Singapore, okay, so maybe not Chinese, but, uh, and the Chinese University of Hong Kong used fMRI data and text-to-image AI model stable diffusion to create a mo model called MinD video that generates video from the brain readings. Their demonstration on the paper's corresponding website shows a parallel between videos that were shown to subjects and the AI-generated videos based on their brain activity. The differences between the two videos are slight and for the most part contain similar subjects and color palettes. Uh, quick pause there. If you look at the picture they show, it is very, um like the video they showed to the subjects. So basically they would show a video to the subjects and then the AI would read their brain waves and try to recreate the video. So the video they showed to the subjects was like a cat and then the video that the AI interpreted was a completely different cat. However, in my opinion, it's still a freaking cat. And that personally, I found that really unsettling, you know, like, oh my God, like it, that's considering they had literally nothing to work off except brainwaves. Like in my opinion, that is incredibly accurate and uncanny. I, I don't know. Y'all may feel different, but to me, that was startling. Anyways, uh, videos published by the researchers show the original video. Yeah, here we go. Um, showed the original video of horses in a field and then a reconstructed video of a more vibrantly colored version of the horses. In another video, a car drives down a wooded area and then a reconstructed video displays a first-person POV of someone traveling down a winding road. The researchers found that the reconstructed videos were high quality as defined by motions and scene dynamics. They also reported that the videos had an accuracy of 85% and improvement on previous approaches, unquote. We are literally moving into a world of reading our minds 
I am not a fan. I don't know, uh, really, really creepy stuff. And like I said, I, if you look at the, the before and after photos, I will agree they're not crazy accurate until you realize that they had literally nothing to work with and still picked, you know, horses and roads and car or cats. Like, I, I don't know. To me, this is super creepy stuff. Politics. It's It gets so much more optimistic in the politics section, especially this first story. So U.S. intelligence is building a system to track mass movement of people around the world. I was being sarcastic. So the project is called the Hidden Activity Signal and Trajectory Anomaly Characterization. Literally, it's called Haystack. That's the acronym. So <laughs> this program, it aims to establish normal movement models across times, locations, and populations and determine what makes an activity atypical, according to a press release from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. An ever-increasing amount of geospatial data is created every day, Jack Cooper, which is Haystack's program manager, said in a press release. With Haystack, we have the opportunity to leverage machine learning and advances in AI to understand mobility patterns with exceptional clarity. The more robustly we can model normal movements, the more sharply we can identify what is out of the ordinary and foresee a possible emergency. Cooper also mentioned privacy, or rather a lack of it, as a motivation for thinking about human movement. Today, you might think that privacy means going to live off the grid in the middle of nowhere, he said. That's just not realistic in today's environment. Sensors are cheap, everybody's got one, there's no such thing as living off the grid. Haystack's landing page on IAR, IARPA's website includes several proposals from companies looking to be part of the project, as well as a March 22nd briefing detailing existing Pentagon projects from defense contractor AIS that Haystack might be interested in. The article goes on to list several of these competing projects and how they worked. We won't list them here for the sake of brevity, but please give them a look. They're pretty insane, and this whole story is crazy, and screw you, Jack Cooper. <laughs> I also hate this take. And the, the take of everybody's got a sensor. There's no such thing as living off the grid. I hate this take because it's actually my least favorite thing because it's, well, well, right. But I see this within the privacy community. People inside the privacy community spread this concept around and this take, which all it does is cause more damage and spread this rumor and theory that there's just nothing to do, don't, don't give a crap about your privacy. People don't realize they're doing that. When you spread this around, that it doesn't matter, there's no privacy today, so just, just, just it's fine. Uh, we can't do anything about it, this defeatist nonsense, then you're done. Like, if you're spreading this, you are done. You're spreading this complete misinformation. You're pretty much enabling people to do things like this. There's a reason why this Jack Cooper guy who's trying to push this absolute monstrosity of surveillance is spreading this kind of sentiment around because it works. It makes people think they have nothing to do about their privacy. So when people within the privacy community are saying this, tell them to shut the hell up because they're no worse than Jack Cooper when they say, you can't do anything anyway, so you guys are all paranoid, blah, blah, blah. It's really silly. Well, just to throw it in there, the other side of that argument is they're gatekeeping, you know, because I've met a lot of people who are like, oh, well, I don't have a phone. I don't need a phone. I've been doing just fine without a phone. I, I work a job where like I'm on site and the site changes every day. Like I, I, I have to have a phone. I just need to. My boss needs to be able to contact me to be like, hey, something changed. Go here, do this. You know, you're going to be somewhere else tomorrow. Like not everyone has that. And if you do great, more power to you. I'm going to be honest with the exception of signal. If I didn't need a phone, I probably wouldn't have one, but not everyone has that, that luxury. And it's just gatekeeping. It's like, oh, well, if you want privacy, you just don't have a phone or don't have a computer or whatever. And it's like, 
you know, don't have Windows, don't have Mac. And it's like, not everyone has that option, man. It's ridiculous. Okay, so this next story, um, we're mostly sharing because it is kind of a big story. It made several headlines and I just feel like it's something y'all should be aware of. And it's a developing story. So of course, as we learn more, we will keep you updated. The headline says, Chinese hackers breach US critical infrastructure in stealthy attacks. And again, just to clarify, Chinese hackers because they are state-sponsored. Quoting the article, Microsoft says a Chinese cyber espionage group it tracks as Volt Typhoon has been targeting critical infrastructure organizations across the United States, including Guam, since at least mid-2021. Their victims span a wide range of critical sectors, including government, maritime communications, manufacturing, information technology, utilities, transportation, construction, and education. Microsoft assesses with moderate confidence that this Volt Typhoon campaign is pursuing development of capabilities that could disrupt critical communications infrastructure between the United States and Asia region during future crises. The article goes into more. There's some speculation this might have to do with rising tensions in Taiwan. All that is kind of political stuff that falls outside the scope of this podcast, but it is definitely worth checking out and reading. For the record, I recently read, I think it was Sandworm by Andy Greenberg. Um, Thank you again to whatever reader turned me on to him. His books are really good. That is a really good book to read. It's about just a quick summary. It's about the rise of Russia as like a nation state hacking threat, like a global hacking threat, specifically the Sandworm group. Um, But towards the end there, it really just overall talks about uh, targeting of critical infrastructure and stuff. It's definitely worth a read if you guys are into this stuff. And up next, Indiana, Iowa, and Tennessee have passed comprehensive privacy laws. Um, It's been kind of a nice month for the U.S. data privacy because these three states all passed state privacy laws, bringing the total number of states with a privacy law up to eight. (laughs) But this is good. Um, I think a lot of these laws are like, you know, they're very like washed away laws. Um, I don't think that they're the best thing out there. But if every state had something like this, we would be in a better place, I think. Um, But I think something federal would just be much better. Um, uh, Ideally, um, there could be both. There could be state and federal um, regulations for this kind of stuff. But it's crazy that we're only at eight states out of 50. Our next story is just a really quick update. (laughs) So last week we talked about how Meta was about to be given like the largest GDPR fine ever by Ireland, I believe it was. And I mentioned that the article didn't say how much that fine was going to be. And I'd be really curious to know. And then literally Monday morning, this article rolls out. Meta's $1.3 billion fine is a strike against surveillance capitalism. You can read the whole article if you want. Wired does really good stuff. But yeah, just a quick update. That's what it was. $1.3 billion with a B dollars. B is in Bravo. I know for the record, I know metal makes a lot more money than that, but it's still, it's always good to see bigger and bigger fines, in my opinion. Leaked government document shows that Spain wants to ban end-to-end encryption. So the document is a European Council survey of member countries' views on encryption regulation, offered officials behind-the-scenes opinions on how to craft a highly controversial law to stop the spread of CSAM in Europe. The proposed law would require tech companies to scan their platforms, including users' private images, to find illegal material. However, the proposal from Johansson, the EU commissioner in charge of home affairs, has drawn ire from cryptographers, technologists, and privacy advocates for its potential impact on end-to-end encryption. You know, the people who actually do the end-to-end encryption probably know what they're talking about. Of the 20 EU countries represented in the document leaked to Wired, the majority said they are in favor of some form of scanning of encrypted messages, with Spain's position emerging as the most extreme. Ideally, in our view, this is a quote, ideally, in our view, it would be desirable to legislatively prevent EU-based service providers from implementing end-to-end encryption, Spanish representatives said in the document. We see something like this every week. Just from a pure 
perspective, like you can't ban ban end-to-end encryption. You just can't. I can right now take some open source cryptography library and build my own encryption for something. Um, And that's not terribly difficult for people to do. So what's stopping a random person from just rolling their own encryption for their own service and using that? Um, This isn't something that's actually able to be regulated. And if you tried this in a court, the person could just say, well, this is like my, my, I have the freedom to make software. Like, why is this actually, there's nothing inherently wrong with me encrypting files, you know? So it's just a silly thing to try to do. I don't know what their plan is for this, but again, cryptographers, technologists, and privacy advocates, all three people who have a lot of skin in this game, um, are all saying that this is not a good thing. I know I mentioned this a couple uh, episodes ago, but the EFF was involved in a very landmark decision in the 90s. Yeah, and that's actually what it was about, was that was their argument, is code is free speech. You can't throw somebody, you can't ban a code because it's free speech. That is somebody expressing themselves. So this next one, I'm going to quote a lot of, uh, but it's all really relevant, good stuff. So the headline says, United Nations official and others in Armenia hacked by NSO group spyware. Researchers have documented the first known case of NSO group spyware being used in a military conflict after they discovered that journalists, human rights advocates, a UN official, United Nations, and members of civil society in Armenia were hacked by a government using the spyware. The hacking campaign, which targeted at least a dozen victims from October 2020 to December 2022, appears closely linked to events in the long-running military conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Previous investigations into spyware abuses by NSO Group's clients have already established with quote-unquote substantial evidence, according to researchers, that Azerbaijan is a government client of NSO Group. The news is significant because the use of Pegasus a military-grade spyware that can hack into and remotely control any phone, has never been documented inside a military conflict. So that's why we're sharing this, because this is kind of one of those, like, first time we're seeing these things. The hacking of the Armenia-based individuals was first discovered in November 2021, two months after a series of clashes along the border claimed at least 200 lives in the most serious escalation of violence since the 2020 Nagomo-Karabakh War. Uh, Sorry, I'm not super familiar with that. I apologize. Apple began sending notifications to mobile users who they believed had been targeted with state-sponsored spyware. A former Armenian foreign ministry spokesman, spokesperson was hacked at least 27 times between October 2020 and July 2021. And for the record, I, I know there's going to be that like one uppity person out there that's like, how do you get hacked that many times? I'd like to see you fend off the NSA. She told Access Now that she had, quote, all the information about the developments during the war on her phone, unquote, at the time of her hacking, and that she now feels there is no way for her to feel fully safe. Quoting her again, even if you have the most secure system on your phone, you cannot be secure. This raises important questions about the safety of international organizations, journalists, humanitarians, and others working around conflict. It should also send a chill down the spine of every foreign government whose diplomatic service has been engaged around the conflict. And that was a senior researcher at Citizen Lab. Access Now and its partners said they believe the hacking was done by a customer of NSO Group, though the data could not be uh, conclusively be linked to a specific client. They added that given the individual's work on the conflict, it is possible that Armenia's government may have also been interested in hacking the individuals, but said there was no other evidence to suggest that Armenia had ever been a Pegasus user. Indeed, the country is believed to be a user of a different spyware product named Predator, who we have discussed, created by Citrox, a business rival of NSO. Other evidence points to Azerbaijan as an NSO customer. Quick note, we didn't include it in this article or in this episode, but if you go to the New Oil's Mastodon, we did publish, somebody did a complete teardown of Predator. Actually, it might've been in last week's episode, but someone recently did like a complete in-depth examination into Predator in the last couple of weeks, and you can probably find it there. And the last quote, it says, NSO has said it investigates credible reports of its spyware being abused by government clients. 
unquote. Again, sharing this because this is the first time we're seeing uh, this type of spyware being used in actual like war zones. Uh, cybersecurity or like the cyberspace is becoming part of the combat zone and that is an unsettling and unfortunate development. Before I get into our misfits, uh, we don't really have any FOSS stories, but I did quickly want to mention that Bitwarden um, has announced passkey support. Um, but this is very early on. I don't even think it's rolled out yet. It's just an announcement. And my guess is they're announcing this to kind of wave off some of the excitement around 1Password also getting passkey support. Um, so again, we're just announcing this. We're not going to dive into it because they haven't actually released anything as far as I'm concerned. But stay subscribed. And when more stuff comes out, we'll cover it. For what it's worth, they said it'll be out this summer. They didn't give an exact date. Regarding the misfits. So we're going to start with cyberstalkers who are using Windows 11 phone link feature to monitor iPhones. Microsoft recently released a phone link feature for Windows 11 users, which allows iPhone owners to view notifications on their Windows PCs, which could pose a significant security risk. According to app developer Certo Software, the inclusion of the new Windows 11 feature raises concerns about potential security vulnerabilities that cyberstalkers can exploit against iPhone users. Pretty much what they say is cyberstalkers with physical access to their victim's iPhone can set up phone link on their own Windows computer and spy on iMessages and phone calls without the victim's knowledge. This type of cyberstalking can be very harmful because abusive partners, parents, or friends can use it to track the victim's location. Additionally, the report suggested that users routinely check which Bluetooth devices their iPhone is automatically pairing with, and if they don't recognize one, they can unpair their device through sitting, through their settings. So that seems like it's the main protection is just to make sure that your Bluetooth devices um, are actually ones that you paired. I, I see why they, they did this, and I see this article. I understand the risk, but anyone that has physical access to your devices, they can do this with anything that has any kind of syncing. Um, like for example, if, if you're using signal and you have an iPhone and you have a domestic situation, um, someone can set up signal on their desktop and then add signal on the desktop as a linked account. And unless you go into your signal settings, you're not going to know that it was a linked account. So this is, this seems a little nitpicky. It's not that it's not a real concern. It's just, there's so many other ways of accomplishing this very thing. Um, but it's still something that everyone should keep an eye on and to just keep tabs on like what your devices are syncing to. Okay, this next story is very unfortunate. It says legit app in Google Play turns malicious and sends mic recording every 15 minutes. The app titled iRecorder Screen Recorder, which is weird, started life on Google Play in September 2021 as a benign app that allowed users to record the screens of their Android devices, according to an ESET researcher. 11 months later, the app was updated to add entirely new functionality. It included the ability to remotely turn on the device mic and record sound, connect to an attacker-controlled server, and upload the audio and other sensitive files that were stored on the device. The researcher said that it's possible that iRecord is part of an active espionage campaign, but so far he has been unable to determine if that's the case. Unfortunately, this is quoting him, Unfortunately, Unfortunately, we don't have any evidence that the app was pushed to a particular group of people, and from the app description and further research, possible app distribution vector, it isn't clear if a specific group of people was targeted or not. It seems very unusual, but we don't have any evidence to say otherwise. So in other words, uh, we don't know why this is happening. It is probably, I would say just based on the fact that this seems to have come completely out of left field, it's probably some sort of cyber espionage campaign, but it's not clear who's behind it, who's targeted, who the target is. The As far as I can tell from the article, the actual developers haven't said anything. Uh, I don't even know if they were contacted, but they haven't said anything about like, oh crap, we don't know what happened. We're going to fix that or anything like that. So as always, be very, very careful what apps you put on your device. Uh, I think 
iOS and Android both come with screen recorders now. So I don't know why you would need to download a third party one. Next story. So an IT employee impersonates the ransomware gang to extort employers. So a press release published by the Southeast Regional Organized Crime Unit explains that in February 2018, the convicted man worked as an IT security analyst at an Oxford-based company that suffered a ransomware attack. Like many ransomware attacks, the threat actors contacted the company's executives demanding a ransom payment. Due to his role in the company, the convicted person took part in the internal investigations and incident response effort, which was also supported by other members of the company and the police. However, during this phase, they said to have attempted to enrich themselves from the attack by tricking the employer into paying him a ransom instead of the original external attacker. So like if the attacker, you know, was like, you have to pay us a thousand Bitcoin um, to this wallet address, he could switch the wallet address to be his. So the company paid him instead. This was unknown to the police, his colleagues, and his employer, and he commenced a separate and secondary attack against the company. He, he accessed a board member's private emails over 300 times as well as altering the original blackmail email and changing the payment address provided by the original attacker. The plan was to take advantage of the situation and divert the payment to a cryptocurrency wallet under his control. Funny, I didn't read through the whole notes before, so I was using like mine as an example. That's exactly what he did, actually. So um, the First company- thought, best thought. <laughs> You're right. Um, So the company owner wasn't interested in paying the attackers and the internal investigations that were still underway at the time revealed the unauthorized access to private emails pointing to his home's IP address. Although he realized the investigations closed in on him and had wiped all data from his personal devices by the time the team stormed into his home to seize his computer, it was still possible to restore incriminating data. So this next story is a really quick one. The headline says, see your identity pieced together from stolen data. Um, personally, I did not find this to be very compelling. It's basically an article that it pulls it. So it asks you to enter your email address. And if you don't enter it, it'll just give you like a generic version. But if you do enter it, it'll pull breach data from have I been pwns database, uh, using an API. And it'll basically talk about like, Hey, in, you know, 2007, your email address was caught in the MySpace data breach or whatever the hell that was. And it pulled potentially all this different data. But what they're trying to convey is like, you know, you may think that your email address isn't that important, or you may think like maybe one data breach isn't that important, but you pull from all these data breaches over the years and you combine all this data and it creates a fuller picture, which many of you already know. So the reason I'm sharing this is your friends and family might actually find this more enlightening than I did. Uh, Maybe they won't, I don't know. Could be something to share. I don't know. I thought it was cool. Henry's gonna take the first Q&A question. So I'm uh, I'm gonna take this very last story here. The headline says, an example of a very sad Google account recovery failure and how it affects real people. So for a moment, if you guys will humor me, I need you to put aside your... uh, justifiably worked up privacy activist self for a moment and get into a headspace where you have empathy for other people. I'm not trying to be rude. Like I said, I'm not trying to be rude, but like seriously, like, you know, think about someone in your life who's maybe not very tech savvy, but you love them anyways, like maybe your grandmother. And think about them as you hear this story. So this was an email that the author received. I tried to help a lovely neighbor, the quintessential lady, a little old lady recently with her attempt to recover her legacy Gmail account. She had been using the original account for over 15 years, and it was created so long ago that she didn't need to provide any recovery at the time. Uh, She may have used a a landline phone number that's long been canceled, but that was about it. 
For at least the last decade, she was just using the stored password to log in and check her email. When her ancient iPad finally died, she tried to add the Gmail account to her new replacement iPad. However, she couldn't remember the password in order to log in. Because the old device had changed and she couldn't remember the password and there was no back channel recovery method for her account, there was no way to log in. I don't know if you've ever attempted to contact a human being at Google tech support, but it's pretty much impossible. So she had to abandon hopes of viewing her Google photos of her now deceased beloved pet, her contacts, her email subscriptions, reminders, calendar entries, etc. The person who wrote this is really more frustrated that Google does not offer more options for this person. They go on to say, for example, I recognize there are many different kinds of Google users. Some folks like journalists, dissidents, whistleblowers, political candidates, et cetera, need maximum security for their communications. In these cases, it makes sense to employ multi-factor authentication and an encryption, one-time passwords, and other exceptional privacy and security features. However, there are a great many average users who find these additional steps difficult, frustrating, and especially in the case of elderly people who aren't necessarily very tech savvy, sometimes bewildering. It's tough to explain that your treasured photos can't be retrieved because you're not the sort of user that Google had in mind. Not everyone is a millennial digital native who finds all this obvious, unquote. What I took away from this was a lot of the time we preach things here on Surveillance Report that you guys don't like because they're not perfect. And I understand that. You know, Signal requires a phone number. That really sucks. The point is like, I, I understand some of these things are less than ideal. And there's certainly a threshold where if it, you know, if it's really less than ideal, we shouldn't be uh, recommending it at all. But I think it's also important to remember that privacy needs to be accessible to everyone. And if you are at the point where you are on like the most hardened phone or no phone, you know, with like uh, XMPP, with like PGP inserted manually and like all this crazy stuff, like, hey man, if that works for you, that's awesome. Good for you. I'm happy for you. I genuinely am. But you need to remember that there's a lot of people out there. I have personally met a lot of these people who literally do not understand, you know, where is the address bar to type in facebook.com? They're real. They exist. I promise you. I've met a lot of them. It's scary. I, I do agree with you that we always need to be trying to do the best we can, but at the same time, try to have some sympathy for those people. Like a password manager, any password manager, even LastPass, and we hate LastPass around here, even LastPass would have saved this lady from losing all of that important stuff. So it's really important to understand people's threat models, their capabilities, their resources, and try to make privacy accessible for everybody. I don't know. That story really hit me personally. I'm not going to lie. Maybe it's because I have cats and I was like, oh, I would be really sad if I lost all those pictures. But, you know, not everybody needs to self-host NextCloud and all that stuff. It's we need to make privacy accessible for everybody. So we're going to get into the Q&A. So this is from Frank S. And he says, I use Mac OS and for work, I have to use Microsoft Teams and the Microsoft Office desktop applications. It's good that you mentioned that because my first suggestion would have been, well, can't you just use the web apps? Um, and then you said, from time to time, is there a practical way to sandbox or isolate these apps from the rest of my machine? So you're forced to use the desktop clients for Microsoft Teams and Microsoft Office. Um, you do offer some suggestions. You say that you might consider using a VM running Windows, though it feels like a heavy solution and you'd have to connect to USB devices from a VM. And then your second suggestion is to run these apps under a separate macOS user profile, though switching between normal apps and the Microsoft stuff would be uh, not super convenient. And then you would have to set up file sharing between the users. Um, so a few things here that I wanted to share. Uh, the first one, macOS uh, actually already has some very strong sandboxing and very strong protection in the first place. Um, it also gives you a lot of tight permission management. It's kind of like your phone. Like on your phone, you can turn off file access for certain applications or you can um, disable the 
uh, you can disable the camera and the microphone permission. There's lots of things you can disable on macOS in regards to permission management. So for people with lower threat models, I actually say you're probably fine just installing the, the application. Um, there's not like a huge inherent security issue here. Um, with that said, if you want more protection, I actually really personally like the VM route that you're suggesting with a couple asterisks there. Um, it's really a lot better if you're an Apple Silicon. Um, Apple Silicon runs virtual machines, especially with parallels, very well. So if you go this route, I strongly suggest being on an Apple Silicon device with Parallels. Parallels is a fantastic virtual machine software. Like one of the only video games I play is Kingdom Hearts and people have even like been playing Kingdom Hearts 3 inside of a Windows VM on Parallels. There's a new video that came out of this within the last week. And Parallels even has like automatic features. You mentioned like plug in a USB. Um, you can do things like if you plug in a certain USB flash drive, it auto mounts only within Windows. So it's all automatic. Um, it's the best virtual machine software I've ever used in my life. So that's actually my best suggestion for you if you really want to keep these separate. Um, you mentioned the separate profiles. This is also a good solution. I've done something like this in the past as well on macOS. I really enjoy it. You can make this a little bit easier by setting up a public or a shared folder between the accounts, or you can use the Dropbox folder um, within macOS. And so it's easy for you to just keep all your files in one place and it's shared between the two um, user accounts so you don't have to deal with like transferring the files every single time. So just some stuff to throw your way. Um, if you have the money to spare, Parallels is honestly great. Like not even just for this specific use case, you could just boot any random Linux virtual machine on your laptop and have fun with it. Um, and you can set up different operating systems for different things. It kind of feels like being on cubes on Mac OS a little bit for me. Um, even though it's not quite cubes, it kind of feels like that sometimes. All right. Our next question comes from Blue Gandalf who says, is there an open banking third party you recommend? Basically alternatives to Nordigen, Plaid, et cetera, which have a better privacy policy. Um, so for those who don't know, I don't know about that Nordigen one, I've never heard of that, but Plaid is when you use an app like uh, like Mint or um, even I think privacy.com uses them, basically almost every financial app out there, when it syncs with your bank account, it uses Plaid. And for the record, privacy.com, they only use Plaid to verify your identity. Uh, uh, beyond that, Plaid never really sees any data about you. I'm going to go ahead and actually punt this question to someone else. I actually just went and checked my podcasts. If you check out uh, Michael Basil's podcast, The Privacy, Security, and OSINT Show, a couple weeks ago, it was episode 293, released on April 14th, Financial Software Considerations. He actually talks all about this. There's two he recommends. Um, one is GNU Cash, which I use. It's ugly as hell. I'm not going to lie to you guys. It is hideous to look at. I'm going to be upfront about that. But if you're like me and you're like, I don't care how ugly it is, it works, and that's all that matters, it works, okay? It works great, and it probably does more than you will ever need it to. It works really, really well. And it's open source and the whole nine, Linux compatible, Windows compatible, probably Mac compatible. Uh, it's a great software. It's just super ugly. I can't remember the name of the second software he recommends. I want to say it's OpenSea or something like that. That's the one that he also uses. It's much more polished. Like GNU Cash is mostly, depending on the bank you use, um, it's mostly offline. It, some banks, it will synchronize to your account, but not all of them. This this other software he recommends, it's it's much more, again, it's much more polished. It works a lot smoother. It's a little more mainstream. Like just the functionality and, and a lot of the things he did, he, he was very convinced that it was a very privacy-respecting platform. Again, he explains all that better in his podcast. Uh, so yeah, I would say check that out. Um, listen to his recommendations. My personal recommendation is GNU Cash, but again, it's not right for everybody for a variety of reasons. 
And the final question is from M. Um, long story short, you know, I read this, we can read it, you can read it if you're on the screen, but it's pretty much, he's asking for a home security camera system um, or like a privacy focus comparison. You asked if there's a review. I don't really have a review incoming about this on my end. You pretty much said that you're looking for something that's end-to-end -end encrypted and avoiding cloud storage um, so that it can't be handed over to law enforcement for any kind of purposes. So I haven't done a huge amount of research into this, um, but I will say that one of the things that I can suggest to you right now that you can look into um, is the Synology suite. I don't believe it's open source, but with Synology, you would have your own NAS at home. Um, that would be hosted by yourself. I do believe there's a mobile client, if I'm not mistaken. Someone please fact check me if that's right or not. And I, I think it supports like almost every IP camera out there. Um, and this is something that you would own yourself. It wouldn't be uploaded anywhere. And it might even still give you cloud, a cloud functionality via your phone, via some capacity as well. Um, but if, again, it's all controlled by you. Like you're controlling your own data and it's all run by yourself. Um, there might be, you know, for all I know, a dozen other solutions like this out there. I just personally haven't looked into it. So I don't know if Nate has other suggestions here. I have a couple thoughts. So number one, yeah, I also have not really looked into this a whole lot. I used to use Haven because um, like we talked about earlier, I just, I had a camera laying around and I was like, why not? And um, Haven is pretty much abandoned these days. So I wouldn't really recommend it. Number one, if you just search, like I I'm on brave right now and I looked up self-hosted security cameras, there's r slash self-hosted on Reddit security camera. Um, there's Y combinator, bunch of Reddit threads. Um, I spy open source. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. Eight best DIY security cameras and software for Linux. Five reasons you should self-host your DIY smart home, blah, 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 blah. Another resource that I, I recommend is a starting point. Heavy emphasis on that. Uh, Mozilla's Privacy Not Included project. Mozilla to me in this sense is very similar to EFF in the sense that I feel like sometimes they give people a little too much slack, but they do have a list here of, it looks like they've listed about nine security cameras and some of them like Eufy, they have a little, uh, and Amazon's here and uh, Google Nest. Well, Google Nest doesn't have it, but Eufy and Amazon, they have a little like exclamation point, like, hey, these aren't great for privacy. But then some of these other ones they list are usually like, and they take into account a number of factors. Like if there's an app, what information does the app collect? Do they have a history of data breaches? Uh, like here they have a section, what could happen if something goes wrong? So again, that's a starting point. I would do your research. I don't know how often this is updated. And also they have Google Nest cams don't have the little exclamation point there. Uh, Simply Safe doesn't have it. And I remember looking at them years ago and I was like, these guys are scary. Yeah, I would I would start there. I would start with talking to other self-hosted people or um, people in the security community and getting their recommendations. That's, that's where I would start. I don't have any actual recommendations to offer at this time, unfortunately, but I would start there with your search. Yeah, all good stuff. And just to follow up a little bit more as you were talking, um, so Synology's thing is called Surveillance Station and it allows recording and processing um, it supports over 8,300 IP camera models. Um, and also it does have a mobile app. So you can get notified for it and you can have two-way audio as well from iOS and Android devices. Um, so that's one thing. I have a Synology NAS. I'm currently editing a review for it. It's a great, I, I freaking love it. Like I love the thing. Um, and so that's one thing that I can comfortably recommend. Even though I haven't used Surveillance Station, I have to imagine it's going to be similar to the rest of the suite. Um, and then there's also all the other things that Nate's covered. And there's probably so many communities that are probably more well-versed in this than we might be. C2 is Synology's own like cloud backup solution. So you can have an offsite backup of everything on your NAS. 
and they actually have i'm probably going to include a screenshot here for people watching um but it actually has integrated recordings so you can actually view your recordings inside the c2 interface online and this is all encrypted with your own private encryption key so synology can't read this um so you actually have like a huge layer of privacy and security here via the synology suite and it's all integrated well if you already use a nas so um, I don't know if this justifies getting an entire NAS just for this use case, because there's probably other solutions. But if you already have like something like a Synology NAS, that could be a good option for people. Well, that was it for the week, everybody. I uh, want to thank you for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to be here. So again, we covered the Android fingerprint vulnerability, the Chinese hackers breaching US infrastructure, legit apps turning malicious, spyware found in combat zones, insider threats, and a lot more. Again, if you get value from this podcast, make sure to join our Patreon. It really is a, a super important way for us to keep this going. We make almost no money from YouTube ads, um, like literally almost no money from YouTube ads on, on surveillance support at the moment. And so really the main way that we're bringing in income from uh, surveillance support is through Patreon and all of you people who are optionally giving us support. And it really does help us grow. And we see all of that. And we really appreciate it. If you don't like Patreon, we also have LibraPay. And if you don't like LibraPay, we also support Monero. Again, we see all of those Monero contributions. Um, We don't know who you are, but we see them every week. Thank you all for tuning in. Leave a review if you want to leave a review and make sure to share around the surveillance support or any stories that might resonate with some of your friends and family to help us spread the word to more people. We don't do any like marketing or anything like that. And so we really rely on word of mouth. So the more you share us around, uh, the better we'll be in the long run. So thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next week.